Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So if this is, uh, if you're kind of new to uh, Missio or have only touched base with us a couple weeks, we have been walking slowly through the book of Genesis. Uh, that's one of the, the primary things that we believe in here is our, jo- our, our desire is not to preach our opinions. Our desire is not to preach like cute little six-week series on here's how to have your best life now kind of stuff. Uh, we really want to just preach God's word um, and look at it intently together. And because we believe that the word of God, we, we believe that this literally is God's word. Um, there's lots of reasons why we believe that. And part of what that means for us is that we believe that this is inspired by God. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that that all scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, So we believe it's inspired. Uh, Number two, we believe that it is true in everything that it says. That this is not the truth that we ask that, or that we try to bend to fit our lives, but that we actually come to it and allow it to shape our lives. Uh, number three, we believe it's sufficient for all of life. So we believe it's, it's inspired by God. We believe it's true in everything that it says. And number three, we believe that it is sufficient for all of life. And so that's why we just want to open up God's word and go, what does it say? Who does it point to? And how do our lives change? should change because of it. And so what we've been doing is today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 22, a very, very famous passage uh, in the life of Abraham and his son Isaac. And if you remember, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abram, who's later has his name changed to Abraham, to leave his country, to leave his people, and to leave his family, and all of the security that's found there, to take his entire life to trust in the God who had called him and the promise that God gives to Abraham for descendants, for land, and for blessing. And throughout Abraham's life, God reaffirmed his promises several times. However, there'd been this tension that has been building regarding this promise of land and an heir and blessing. Because if you remember, the heir, a descendant, was critical to seeing the rest of God's promises fulfilled. And then finally, after years of waiting, God fulfilled his promise. To him. We read in Genesis chapter 21 that Abraham and his wife, that though they were past childbearing age, though his wife Sarah was unable to have children for her whole life, conceived a son by God's blessing. And they named him Isaac. And it was to Isaac that all God's promises from Abraham were going to pass to this son of promise. Because that's what Isaac was a child of promise. And it would be through him that Abraham's descendants would come, who would inherit this land that God promised, and through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. Don't miss this point. Everything hinges on Isaac. But remember, 
Abraham had conceived a son prior to Isaac, a son named Ishmael with a slave girl named Hagar. Ishmael was not the promised son. He was not the inheritor of God's promise. Isaac is. And in chapter 21, the Lord allowed Abraham to send both Hagar and Ishmael away, leaving only Isaac. This is an important step forward in the movement of God's redemptive work of restoring all things that have been broken by sin. God had been faithful to fulfill his promise in establishing Isaac as the sole means through which God's work in the world will continue. But remember again, everything hinges on Isaac. And at the tail end of chapter 21, if you remember, Abraham and this king named Abimelech signed a treaty giving Abraham legal claim to a water well, which this is a significant thing because what it does is it gave Abraham his first secure foothold in the promised land. After years and years of no movement forward in God's promises, in Genesis 21, we see that God gave Abraham an heir and God gave him some claim on the promised land. In one chapter, air and land. As he settled into his life, raising Isaac and living in this land, God once again comes to Abraham. Only this time, Abraham will not be asked to leave his land, but to do something far more costly. Something that will not only cause him tremendous heartache, but is going to put the entire promise of God in jeopardy. So if you have your scriptures with you, either through your phone or your copy of God's Word, or we'll have it on the screen, let's read Genesis chapter 21 together. Or 22, sorry, chapter 22. This is the Word of God. After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took Two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went on or went to the place of which the Lord had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also bore children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chased, Hazo, Pildesh, Jiplah, I don't know how to pronounce that one, and Bethuel, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, who was named Remuah, bore Teba, Gerham, Tarhash, and Makkah. This is the word of the Lord. Don't you love it when names pop up in the scriptures and you're like, I got nothing. I got nothing. This is a heavy text. Like, think about this. Our text opens with these words, after these things, meaning after the events of chapters 12 to 21. With all of its ups and all of its downs, we don't know with certainty how much time has passed. There are different veins of thought about that, and I have my own, which will become clear in a few minutes. But suffice it to say, we're talking years, not days, weeks, or months. Abraham was living peacefully in his part of the land, and he's raising his son Isaac. God's promises have finally begun to come to fruition. Now time just needed to do its work. Have you ever had that moment where, man, I've worked so hard, everything's in place, now I could just like keep doing what I'm doing and everything's going to be good, right? Isaac will grow one day, will get married, and Abraham's progeny will take important steps toward the development of a great nation. But it is in that moment that God came to test Abraham with a gut-wrenching test that will push father and son to the limits of their faith and will seemingly put all of God's promises at risk. The first question that should rightly come to your mind is this. Why would God test Abraham? I didn't think God would do something like this. Why would he put Abraham in a position to fail? Is God trying to learn something about Abraham that he didn't already know? Is there a dark 
aspect to God's character that's coming out, especially when we consider the nature of the test. English Baptist pastor named John Gill, who lived from 1697 to 1771, wrote this about God's testing of Abraham. And I think it's such a great quote. It says, God tried him to prove him and to know his faith in him, his fear of him, his love for him, his love to him, and cheerful obedience to his commands. Not in order to know these things himself, which he was not ignorant of, but to make them known to others, and that Abraham's faith might be strengthened yet more and more. To make this known to others, and that Abraham's faith might be strengthened through this. God tests Abraham in order to expose his heart. What and or who does Abraham truly value above everything else? What God does Abraham truly worship? Whom does he really fear? Is it his child? Is it his comfort? Is it his wife? Is it himself? Is it his descendants? Or is it really Yahweh? Throughout Exodus and Deuteronomy, God tells the nation of Israel he is testing them in order to expose the sincerity of their faith as well. He tells them he is doing this in order to show whom they fear. Do they love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, and all their strength? To expose what really is in their heart. And as Deuteronomy 8.16 says, to really do you good. To do good, to do you good in the end. To do you good in the end. What we read in Genesis 22, it's really shocking. Don't dismiss that it's shocking. Kill your only son, Isaac, and you do it. You drive the knife in him and then burn him. The request God made to sacrifice his only son on whom all the promises hang, it makes no sense and it seems really cruel, doesn't it? especially considering God took it a step further, saying that not only should he be sacrificed, but don't miss it, Abraham, do it by your hand. Even this seemingly despicable ask is for Abraham's good, for the good of his people, showing what it means to truly fear the Lord above all others, lest we be fooled into thinking that something else is more valuable than God, even a child. Even the infinite weight and worth of our or above the infinite weight and worth of our God. Because you see, here is a really important principle. What we ultimately fear is what governs every aspect of our lives. What we fear ultimately is what governs every single thing about your life and the decisions you make. And I would submit it's what you worship. If God is God, he and he alone should be the one governing us. This cannot be exposed in a classroom or with a verbal confession. It must be lived out through obedience, costly obedience, lest we allow lesser things to ultimately govern us instead of God. 
The Lord is not testing Abraham in the same manner the serpent tested Adam and Eve in the garden. All those weeks ago when we looked at Genesis chapter 3, these are not the same. The serpent tempted. God is testing. The serpent tempted in order to bring about sin and death and our harm to their detriment. But Yahweh tests to produce a more genuine and purified faith for our good and his glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, they say this, and Darren read it this morning in our call to worship, where Peter writes to the church, in this you rejoice, meaning in suffering, in hardship, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold or silver that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just as God tested Abraham, God tests his people for his glory and their good. To show others what true faith really looks like, to increase our own faith and ultimately bring about praise, glory, and honor to Christ alone. And so the Lord calls Abraham, who quickly answers, ready to respond to his God. Similar to God's call in chapter 12, there is an increasing intimacy that God uses in his command to, to, to Abraham. He says, go, you remember in, ch in chapter 12, he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And in verse 22, or in chapter 22, he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. Do you see that? Do you see the increasing intimacy? This increasing relational intimacy in the command highlights God's awareness of exactly what he's asking Abraham to do. He knows what he's doing. I know this is your only son. I know you love him dearly, and I want you to put him on the altar for me. God knows this is a test. We know it because of the commentary of verse 1. However, Abraham, this is a very real command. This is a very real request. And unlike the casting away of Ishmael in 21, there is no promise of life for Isaac found in this initial command. Abraham is told to just head to the land of Moriah to some specific mountain that God will show and to sacrifice the child, putting everything at risk. And throughout this chapter, it's really interesting that we do not get a robust description of Abraham's emotion. It's kind of silent on that. We get hints of it. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. But what we clearly see is Abraham's response. And it is a display of incredible faith through his obedience. And like him, God's people display their fear of the Lord through obedience to his commands. God's people display their fear of the Lord through obedience to his commands. 
Verse 3 says that Abraham rose early in the morning like he did when he sent Hagar and Ishmael away to make preparations to go. Notice there's no delay. There is no bargaining. There is no sorrowful uh, meditation. There is no pleading with God to change his mind. No last family trip. No, he got up early in the morning and prepared to carry out God's command. Abraham did not outsource any aspect of his obedience. He saddled his donkey. He got his two servants. Even he cut the wood for the sacrifice. And he led them to where God directed. For three days they journeyed. Two of the most difficult things to get our minds around when we read the scriptures are time and distance. We just read, three days later they arrived. Can you imagine what that must have been like riding with your son who you know you're going to kill for three days. Traveling mile after mile with your beloved son, the wood for his sacrifice is always in view of your sight. The scriptures are silent on this. They simply say, on the third day he lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Many theologians hold that the mountain that God set apart is the same mountain where the temple in Jerusalem would be built one day. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it says that Mount Moriah, it was there that King Solomon built the temple, which would be the center of worship and sacrifice and God's presence. And it is marked by this moment. As the small group approached, Abraham tells the servants to remain with the donkey, that he and the boy will go up the mountain and worship God. And then he makes this very peculiar statement in verse 5, and we will come to you again. We're going to go up and worship and come to you again. What did he mean? He knows what he's going to do. They will worship and come back to them? Is he being coy? Is he simply being discreet on purpose not to frighten Isaac? Is he trying to shield Isaac from what he is about to do? Well, the good news is we don't have to guess. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, the Holy Spirit inspired the author to write these words about this moment, where he says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God had produced such faith in Abraham that he knew even if I, when I plunge the knife in him and I burn him, God is powerful enough to raise him from the dead because God gave promises. He asked me to do something I don't understand, but I believe that God is not a liar and that God is not evil and he will somehow bring life from this sacrifice. Abraham believed God had the power to raise the dead. He did not doubt God's word. He knew every promise would be fulfilled. So Abraham takes the wood and he lays it on Isaac's back. And he carried the fire and the knife, and together they walk up the hill. 
There is speculation about Isaac's age. Some think he was five. Some think he was 25. Some think he's 37 years old. I don't know how they came up with 37, but some commentators are like, he's 37 and a half. I don't know. <laughs> However, it seems most plausible that he's a younger teenager, 14 or 15 years old. The reason why is the word for boy used in chapter 22 is the same word for boy used in, of Ishmael in chapter 21, who is most likely 14 or 15 years old. Isaac is strong enough to carry the wood and to observe that something is missing and respectfully ask, we have the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? Like he's aware that something's going on, so he's old enough to know. And in this simple exchange, we see a great affection between a father and a son. My father, said Isaac, here I am, my son. Each using endearing terms for one another. And Abraham's in verse 8 is a pivotal one for the entire chapter. Where Isaac is like, my father, where's the, where's the lamb? And he says, my son. God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. The anguish Abraham must have felt since God's call to do this is not recorded. As a father, I can't imagine walking up a hill and hearing my son's voice effectually call me as his father and wondering where the sacrifice is. Nothing about this is easy, and there have been so many obstacles to Abraham's obedience the command itself is nauseating. The three-day journey, mulling over what you're going to do, the conversations along the way, managing your emotions, and now walking up the hill. A piercing request from your son. Every parent here can no doubt recognize this anguish. But yet, verse 8 shows Abraham's trust in the Lord. He called him to do this. He will most certainly provide for it to be accomplished. And somehow, in some way, even though it does not make sense, even though he can't see how this will all accomplish anything, in fact, it seems that it will do him harm. It will hurt his family, and it will hurt the future of this promise. But Abraham will not appeal to his senses or to his own reason. He believes the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice, even if that sacrifice is the child of promise. Theologian John Calvin, writing on this, says this, whenever the Lord gives a command, many things are perpetually occurring to enfeeble our purpose or to weaken our purpose. Means fail. We are destitute of counsel. All avenues seem closed. In such straits, the only remedy against despondency is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us where there is none. For as we act unjustly towards God when we hope for nothing from him but what our senses can perceive, so we pay him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce in his providence. Guys, that's a great statement. For we act unjustly towards God when we hope for nothing from him except what my senses feel. 
This is hopeless. He's abandoned me. This isn't going to work. He's a bad God. I don't understand what's happening. That is, that is acting unjustly towards God. But we give him the highest honor when nothing in your senses, nothing in your reason seems to, seems to make any sense of God or any promise. And yet we go, you know what? I don't get it, but I'm going to walk in obedience anyway. I'm going to trust in you anyway. We have such a sensually driven culture today. We are so driven by our emotions that we think they are the word of God. And if I feel it, it must be right. And our feelings lie. Teenagers, your feelings lie to you. And they do not want what God wants. Your flesh is hostile to God. And it will only operate on what you think makes sense. But God's truth beautifully comes in and says, I have a better word. I have a more better promise. I have a more stable foundation for you to stand on. And yes, it is going to knock against everything you think, feel, and believe. But you do not know truth. I am truth. This is why truth is one of our core values here. Truth needs to drive emotion. Emotion does not drive truth. Truth drives, drives circumstances. Circumstances do not dictate truth. And throughout this whole event, Abraham pays the Lord the highest honor by acquiescing to God, trusting him with the outcome, even though none of his own senses can make up or down of what it's all about. As they reach the top of the mountain, Abraham constructs the altar, laying each piece of wood in proper order. He then bound Isaac and laid him on that altar. It is not only Abraham's faith that we must pay attention to, but I think there's something that we can learn from Isaac, who is old enough to carry the wood. Abraham is very, very old, which means Isaac is old enough to fight back if he wanted to. However, with the exception to his question in verse 7, Isaac is a silent and willing sacrifice. There is no resistance. There is no appeal to mercy. There is no crying to speak of. He simply trusts his father as he walks him up the hill. As the altar is built, as his father binds his arms and his legs, and as he's laying down to be slain, Abraham then reached out and grabbed the knife. And just as he was about to, quote, slaughter his son, verse 10 says. The word slaughter here is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, describing sacrifices being offered for sacred reasons. And it's meant to draw suspense. Think about this for a moment. Get this picture in your mind. There is Abraham, son bound, Knife raised. He is going to plunge it into his son. Just as the knife is about to fall, the angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. For I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your only son from me. 
Abraham's heart has been exposed. He lives his entire life with the fear of the Lord. He has no other gods that he worships. Nothing uh, separates or bifurcates his ultimate affection and devotion to his covenant-keeping God. The Lord truly governs his life. As James chapter 2, verses 22 to 23 says, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, saying, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. It is not the work that made Abraham right with God. It was solely his faith. But it, but it was his work which showed he had genuine faith. This is how faith and works come together. Abraham feared the Lord and showed he was sincere by his willingness to obey. This is critically important to understand what it means to live by faith. See, our actions ultimately display where our true faith lies. Our true faith lies in what we ultimately fear. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This is why Jesus says things like, you will know a tree by its fruit. I have met people through 22 year, 20, almost 22 years of full-time ministry that will tell me I have great faith in the Lord. And then you look at their life and nothing shows you that they have faith in the Lord. It's like their entire life has lived up to them. They make very little time for the word. They don't really obey his commands. They work as if their entire life is dependent on their own ability. They, they fall apart when things begin to look anxious in their life. I see mothers who claim to love Jesus, and yet their children are actually their gods. I see people who will say, I believe in Jesus, but then they feel this tremendous guilt before the Lord as if somehow they need to overcome their own sin. And it's like, no, we may theologically be correct in our minds, but live as a functional atheist. And what we see here is the scriptures do not call us to live that way. The scriptures call us if we have faith and trust in the Lord, we live that faith out that with our weak knees and our feeble hands, we walk in obedience to his word. Yes, you will fall. Yes, you will not be perfect. And we appeal even more to the grace of God when we fall and we're not perfect. But the pursuit towards Christ is the same. The angel of the Lord declares, I know that you fear God. Not because he's learned something about Abraham he didn't already know. This is a statement of approval. God, Abraham's faith is not hidden in his heart. It is lived out for the world to see through his steadfast, sacrificial obedience. God would not allow Abraham to go any farther. The child of promise would live and not die. And instead of Isaac being offered as a sacrifice, God would provide one that would take his place. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw a ram caught in a thicket. The same God that tested Abraham is the same God that provided a sacrifice that stood in the place of Isaac. And so Abraham declares, the Lord will provide. Abraham will surely be blessed. 
God's people will come through Isaac. The nations will be blessed and they will possess the promised land. And so verse 19 closes out the primary narrative of Abraham's life and he and Isaac head back to Beersheba together. So what are we to take from this profound chapter? I have two things. Number one, consider Isaac. Consider Isaac, who represents both Jesus Christ and God's people. We see a father willing to sacrifice his own son as an act of worship. We see the son a willing, silent, and obedient sacrifice, submitting to his father, carrying the wood up the hill without fighting back, and lays himself out to die. This foreshadows Jesus who is God's own son, sent by his father to die as a willing sacrifice for the sins of his people. He carried his own cross up the hill. He stood silent before those who would kill him. He fully submitted to the will of his father without protest. However, unlike Isaac, Jesus was not spared. He died as a substitute for the, for the people of God, like the ram that was provided by God so it would die instead of Isaac. Jesus was put forward by the Father, showing that like Isaac, God's people would live because a substitute would die in their place. Because God's people are saved from eternal death by a God-provided substitute, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. All who believe in him shall not die, but have eternal life. Number two, consider Abraham, whose actions showed his fear of the Lord. What we ultimately fear is what governs our lives, what we sacrifice for, what we obey. Abraham showed the world with utter clarity he worships Yahweh, that he alone governs Abraham's life. Are you willing to walk through the various trials and tests of life with such faith? I mean, honestly, I can't answer this question for you, but I think we all need to leave here and sincerely reflect who or what governs your life. Is it the Lord or is it something or someone else? And here's the deal. God is not interested in sharing the throne of your life either. He's not interested in sharing the seat with anything. Not your children, not your career, not your reputation, not your decisions, not your boyfriends or girlfriends, not your classwork, not your accolades, not even, not, not even the pride that you're not worthy to be saved. It is God on the throne or something else. The Lord allows us to walk through trials and tests in order to expose our heart as an example to others and to expose us where we need his mercy and grace. Through it all, we are called to be living sacrifices, remembering that Christ died for us so that we may live faithful and obedient lives for his glory, for our good and the good of others. So ultimately, what is revealed when your heart is exposed? That may seem very difficult when the Lord exposes it. But he exposes it in love so that you would find life in his name. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son.
And God, it is a incredibly humble thought to think that you sent your son, your only son, and you did not spare him, but he went all the way to the cross being a substitute for your people. Dying the death that we deserved for our sin, but rising again to new life that we may find mercy, grace, forgiveness, and life. Oh God, let our lives be found hidden underneath the shadow of Christ's power, strength, glory, death, and life. And may we live a life that fully trusts you that is governed by you, that walks a a life in keeping with our profession of faith, that we would show the world that you really are our God, that that sets the agenda for how we speak, how we treat others, how we handle adversity, how we handle anxiety, how we view what, what, what we can find value in. God, may it all be surrendered to you. And may you sanctify us according to your truth. And may you shine through us that more and more men, women, and children would hear the mercy, grace, and good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.